Welcome to Witch and Goddess. I'm your host, Patty Black. I'm a witch, a teacher, and priestess. Goddess devotion is an essential part of my craft, and many goddesses are my cohorts in magic. Each episode, we explore a different goddess, her lore, and how to connect with her energetically and magically. Welcome. I'm so glad you've joined me once again. It's witch season. Many of us love this time of year, and for various reasons, a lot of witches feel very active or magical. Maybe they even feel powerful. Have you felt this? I wonder, what do you attribute it to? A lot of people may answer the classic thinning of the veil, and that's probably partly responsible. But I can't help but think that there's more to it. I don't have an answer right now, but it's on my mind. So deep in the witching season, I want to explore the witch, who the witch has been, what the witch represents, and how the witch affects our modern world. This time of year, we see the classic Halloween witch, the classic hag, hooked nose, long tangled hair, maybe some warts or green complexion. But more and more over the past few years, we see living, breathing, self-proclaimed witches stepping forward, announcing the reality of their existence, and generally dismaying a large part of the population. People who have always believed witches to be either entirely fictitious or a rare and purely evil supernatural phenomenon. But we've got insider knowledge, and we know better. This is going to feel like a very feminist topic, but the truth is you cannot talk about real witchcraft without talking about the misogyny that created it. The female fearing and hating foundation of society is the dank cauldron in which witchcraft has simmered and brewed for thousands of years. We can actually thank the patriarchy, just a little, because it is the actual long-standing pain and pressure of that system that has created the modern craft. And of course, not all witches are women. Any human can be a witch or accused of it, but historically it was primarily women. Modern definitions of a witch vary quite a bit, but most practicing witches will loosely agree with the idea that anyone who practices magic or metaphysical arts and chooses to identify as a witch is. When we look at history, the practices of magic, sorcery, and mysticism were present and accepted in many cultures. Historically, there was a difference between practicing magic and witchcraft. It's good to remember that the word witch is a slur, and while there are disputes on its exact origins, we definitely know that early humans who were doing the things that witches do today, the figures whose roles and practices most match up with modern witches, would not have been called witch. They were often revered and respected within their communities. They were valued because their knowledge and skills were crucial for living, dying, healing, etc. Let's start with some very early wise women. Ancient civilizations in the Middle East worshipped powerful goddesses like Inanna, Ishtar, and Astarte. I cover them in more detail in Season 1, Episode 12. Now we're talking 4,000 years before Christ. It was common for women in these Mesopotamian communities to practice the holy rituals and sacred arts. The women performing these tasks in the community would have been recognized as important figures, as wise women, sages, etc. These are some of the earliest figures performing the acts that we now know as witchcraft. But they were not called witches. They were counselors to kings, midwives, local healers, making house calls. They even helped with impotence. 
these women were clearly recognized as positive and valuable figures in society. Ancient Egypt is well known for the use of magic. Magic was an integral part of life and the belief systems of ancient Egyptians of all classes. Both men and women served as priests and priestesses devoted to their particular deities and those magical rites. But according to Egyptologist Rosalie David, there were also seers, a more common wise woman figure who may have had prophetic abilities and offered healing care to those who couldn't afford a physician. Seers were known to help with conception, dream interpretation, and knowledge of herbal remedies. Most ancient Egyptians were illiterate, but these seers could apparently memorize spells in order to read them. So what happened? When did the idea of mystical wise women holding positions of responsibility in their communities become negative? We can look to the expansion of warlike cultures even before Christ was born and the spread of monotheistic, male-centered philosophies. These affected how cultures viewed women holding power. It would have happened gradually over hundreds of years, but patriarchy inevitably took over and previously revered goddess figures were demonized. They became suspicious and dangerous figures, enemies of the Hebrew God. And we can see this process and the literal demonization of female deities in the history of the goddess Lilith. She's widely known as a baby-killing hypersexual demon, the original divorcee. But before Hebrew religion did this smear campaign, before they tried to demote her to just Adam's ex-wife, she was a divine spirit in her own right, and not evil. But they had to knock goddesses off their respective thrones so that the Hebrew god didn't have any competition. Women and their unique power had to be demonized and made evil in order to control them and keep them subservient. Any woman showing personal empowerment, intelligence, boldness, that could ruin the whole patriarchy party. So any figure that was an example of female power, be it goddesses or magical human women, could not remain. We can actually see the tension recorded in the Bible. There are numerous verses referencing the well-known goddess Astarte, the Queen of Heaven, mainly talking about how the defiant women and pagans just insist on continuing to burn incense and make offerings to their goddess, provoking the Hebrew god to anger. If you were raised, like me, with an 80s mom in full satanic panic, then you might have seen a very clear connection drawn between anything magic-related and witchcraft. Fantasy, my favorite genre of fiction, was highly suspect. We were forbidden from watching the Smurfs at an early age because of Gargamel the Wizard. Do any of you remember the Smurfs? And much later, she would not allow Harry Potter books in her home. We don't even have time to talk about her opinions on She-Ra as the Princess of Power. The ancient world was very accustomed to magic, and early on seemed to have neutral views about it. The use of magic and rituals to manifest wealth, health, protection, revenge, etc., were used in many cultures by both men and women. Now, the Code of Hammurabi, written about 1750 BCE, states, If a man has put a spell on another man, and it is not justified, he upon whom the spell is laid shall go to the holy river, into the holy river shall he plunge, and it goes on to instruct people how to determine if the spell was justified. The loser dies and the winner gets his house. Literally. So magic is commonplace enough to warrant this law, and people consider the possibility that the use of magic may have been justified. No judgment cast on the use of magic here. Now, of course, in this example, it's a man using magic, 
Even during the European witch trials, there were many wealthy and high-class men who were known to practice magic and prophecy. They were counselors to kings, they were wealthy aristocrats, they worked in secret magic societies, and they were rarely touched or even affected by the witch hunts because the magic wasn't the problem. It was who was doing it. Ancient Greece also provides a wealth of written records about magical practices. Modern witches still turn to the ancient grimoires and pages to reconstruct and inspire magical practices. An exception to wide acceptance of sorcery was the use of poisons and potions to kill. If you've talked about witchcraft with Christians, you've likely heard them quote this from the King James Bible, Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live, from Exodus 22.18. Turns out, a more precise translation is, Thou shalt not suffer a poisoner to live, the Greek word pharmakeia, specifically, which of course has various translations related to the administering of drugs, poisoning, and witchcraft, and we can argue all day long about whether the authors and later translators of the Bible wanted witches dead. My vote is a strong yes. But what pagans should take from this is that poisoning and witchcraft were almost synonymous in ancient times and cultures. There was a very fuzzy line between poisoning and witchcraft. I assume ancient people didn't really understand how poisons worked, and so wise women, well-versed in plant medicine, and who were some of the few people who would have known how to make toxic potions and administer them, could easily be accused of poisoning. Even though it's almost unthinkable for modern witches to administer drugs, especially toxic ones, to others without consent, yes, plenty of us carefully and responsibly involve toxic plants in our practice. The poison path is a beautiful way to connect with plant spirits. But back then, poisons were most well known as a method for murder. And it was much easier to get away with poisoning then. Now, another wise woman figure, an example of a pre-Christian shamanic tradition in Europe, is that of the vulva. Often called the Viking witch, the vulva was almost always a woman, possibly elder, who practiced satyr, Norse magic. The vulva was known as a person able to see the future and communicate with spirits through elaborate rituals. Her prophecies and guidance were relied upon in her community, and it's believed that volas were well-paid and considered of high status. Other titles used to refer to the vulva were prophetess, wise woman, sorceress, and even priestess. They were known for using wands or staffs, and archaeologists have identified several graves that they believe belong to these Scandinavian priestesses, which contain objects such as wands and entheogenic plant material. We know that there were a lot of pagan practices throughout history. We also know that there was a lot of folk magic performed all over Europe, including England, Scotland, Ireland, throughout history. But despite what Gerald Gardner and Margaret Murray tried to claim, there's just no evidence to support that it was an organized religion. In fact, when Christianity became prominent, a lot of folk magic continued alongside Christian practices. Even the village wise women, the midwives, herbal healers, the men and women who performed spells for the community, called conjurers, would have considered themselves Christians and would never have self-identified as witches, despite the fact that their practices very much match what we call witchcraft today. In fact, a lot of the magic they performed was actually to protect against witchcraft, because most people truly believed it to be a threat. Witchcraft was the scapegoat of choice whenever bad fortune fell upon a community or individuals. Livestock got sick, witch did it. 
crops died in the field, drought, storms, the plague. Witchcraft was frequently blamed for all of these and more. If someone was wasting away from a disease that they didn't understand, they were often believed to be suffering under a witch's attack. Now, the vast majority of people punished for witchcraft in the European and North American witch hunts were poor or marginalized women, especially women who were already vulnerable, widowed, considered ill-tempered, or considered suspicious because they were too intelligent. It's true. 35 years before Salem was infected with witch hysteria, Anne Hibbins was a privileged woman and a fresh widow in Boston. Within months of her husband's death, she was on trial for witchcraft. A local pastor who was a witness to her trial and her death and her only public supporter said that her only crime was that she had more wit than her neighbors. Many cultures throughout the world still have witch-like figures, but they will rarely identify with the label witch because of the language differences, of course, but also because the term witch is still a slur. Even though we're reclaiming it, it has always been an insult and originated as such. Even the modern definition of witch distinctly says evil or malicious sorcery and magic. It's a relatively new phenomenon for modern witches to be proud of this title or to self-identify this way. The word began as an accusation of evil magic, an accusation that could get one ostracized or even killed. When we claim the title, it's not to be edgy. Witches specialize in transformation. Many of us have received been taught or called the word witch as this very loaded title or accusation. Think about how it's been used and thrown. The word just spit into the faces of these accused. That word has been charged with power of our accusers' hate and fear for centuries. I believe the word witch has become a deep well of power. And when we take that insult that has been thrown at us, when we hold it in our magic hands and we decide no, this is mine to claim, and it won't be used against me anymore. We are practicing a very important act of transmutation. No longer the accused, now we wield the power. And we are incredibly privileged to be able to practice and discuss this so openly. There have been a lot of reports with misrepresented totals of how many were killed during the European witch hunts. In the 1990s and even beyond, we saw pagan and witchcraft sources inaccurately claiming that millions of women and suspected witches were put to death in the European witch hunts. But much more likely estimates say that between the years 1400 and 1782, there were around 40,000 to 60,000 accused witches killed. That's still far too many. What we do know is this. There were far more victims of witch hunts than victims of witchcraft. Far more actual deaths and imprisonments due to accusations and false confessions than deaths caused by witches. The accusers, the judges, the interrogators and inspectors vastly outnumbered the usually completely innocent accused. Whole communities were complicit in the murder of a few vulnerable among them. The witchcraft we see today is a patchwork quilt of many different practices, new and old. The organized systems are largely modern inventions. Wicca is an organized religion that developed in the mid-20th century. And early founders, like Gerald Gardner, were influenced by archaeologist Margaret Murray's theories that organized pre-Christian witchcraft covens who worshipped both a god and goddess had existed. 
Gardner claimed that this organized goddess religion and traditions had survived intact, and he claimed that his coven was a surviving tradition. It's widely accepted now that Murray's theories, while well-intentioned, are very dubious. It seems there was a lot of projection of the history she would have liked to see into her writings. But Wiccan authors ran with her version for quite a while, so we still see some Wiccans and pagans who are under the impression that they're practicing an ancient religion. Now, Gardner did have a lasting effect on modern witchcraft. He created a religious system that made witchcraft palatable to a large portion of the public and made it much more accessible. Wicca is still quite popular and is partially responsible for the witchcraft trend that we see today. The witch is an empowering modern archetype. And the witch as an archetype is so powerful and necessary right now. An archetype is a recurring symbol. It's a typical example or a model of a very specific type of person, thing, or set of characteristics. And the witch is definitely an archetype, a figure who shows up over and over again in fiction, cinema, all sorts of popular media. Very few people in the world have not encountered at least one representation of the witch. And she's a very complex figure, but very necessary. Our world is facing a variety of traumas and crises. We're finally confronting racism, misogyny, rape culture, the oppression and abuse of LGBTQ individuals and communities. It's a time when so many oppressed and abused people are rising up and demanding better. But it's a hard fight. One in which the activists and warriors need to be strong, resilient, bold. They need to be unapologetic and they have to be willing to upset people and stir shit up. Unfortunately, We've been very effectively socialized to do anything but that for hundreds and hundreds of years. We have so many generations of deep programming that we must be obedient, quiet, not draw attention to ourselves, not value ourselves. Don't upset the apple cart, right? Don't rock the boat. Safety in numbers. You must fit in. Don't poke the bear. All of these proverbs and teachings that reinforce this notion that you keep your head down and do as you're told. You obey the powers that be and you don't question their systems. Even for the boldest among us, it's hard to shake off this programming, to untangle ourselves. We need an example of disobedience, of misbehaving, of rebellion and boldness. We need to see someone who's willing to make things awkward, someone who isn't afraid of being feared or disliked. And that figure, that model, is the witch. Think about some of these characteristics of the witch as an archetype. Powerful, dangerous, feared, healer, intuitive, disruptive, untamed, unpleasant, unattractive, sexual, selfish, angry. Now we as witches don't necessarily embody all of these traits. This is the archetype. But can you see how uncomfortable we are even considering embodying these traits? And if we're so unwilling to identify as or be these things, if we can't summon these traits from within ourselves when we're being exploited or threatened, that makes us very weak. Then we're lambs to the slaughter. So let's start today by being willing to just look at the less pleasant attributes of the witch and to consider the possibility that we can learn from her. The witch has always been an outsider, lives outside the normal boundaries of society. Very often the women who are accused of witchcraft lived literally outside of the village, 
some were unhoused or had been pushed outside of the community because of mental illness, because they bothered others, because they had arguments with more powerful community members. These accused witches knew what it was like to live on the edge, to be at risk of animal attacks, starvation, the pain of loneliness. And today we see the outsider represented as people of color, queer people, sex workers, women or minorities in the traditionally white male professions, people who are misunderstood and subsequently ostracized by a community. As witches, many of us enjoying varying degrees of privilege right now, aren't we perfectly poised to stand up for or stand behind in support of these people? And what a waste of our witch power if we don't. The witch archetype stands as an avatar to liberation. She cackles in the face of oppressors. She refuses to be a quiet victim. She won't go peacefully and she will fight back. She knows she's making people uncomfortable. And while she may care, she won't stop. That is her medicine. The ability to bring uncomfortable truths to light. She's willing to exist in that discomfort and allow it to stretch around us all. When individuals see the witch archetype embodied around them, when we see it presented over and over in media, even when it's the unattractive, evil, unsafe witch, it helps our world. Because the more we see characters displaying these uncomfortable traits, the easier it is for the rest of us to be bold when needed, to speak truth to power, to fight against abuse and exploitation. The witch can reconnect us with our righteous rage, which is needed in this world, so many people have been disconnected from their anger because it's so shamed in this society. And that's left us disempowered. Anger isn't evil. It's a natural human emotion. There are a lot of ways to be a witch these days. Many reject Wicca as their own personal practice because it can be dogmatic, but it has influenced a lot of modern practice. Many Wiccans consider themselves witches, or at least connected to witchcraft. However, not all witches are Wiccans. That is a misconception that we are still trying to eliminate. Witchcraft is not a religion. There are plenty of witches who consider witchcraft to be their spirituality, or at least adjacent to it. But there are also atheist witches. Witchcraft is a practice, so it can exist alongside any religion, even if that religion doesn't officially condone witchcraft. There are lots of Christian witches. Catholicism lends itself very well to folk magic. So you'll find a lot of folk magic practices among Catholics who may or may not identify with the title of witch. And many modern witches still enter this world through the door of Wicca. Although less and less, people who are raised Christian often find the stricter code of behavior in Wicca to be comfortable and familiar, even if they move away from Wicca later in their practice. The Wiccan Read and the Threefold Law are Wiccan inventions and not actual laws that witches have to follow, but they make some people more comfortable with the idea of witchcraft or help to convince them it's not evil. However, more and more witches are exploring different traditions or practicing eclectically, choosing the practices that resonate with them from different traditions. I think it's really important for modern witches to be mindful of only adopting practices that are open to outsiders and not to claim membership to closed religions or communities. A lot of witches of European descent are exploring the magical practices from generations past in their countries of ancestry. This is related to the basis of traditional witchcraft. It's growing in popularity because it's based on what we believe we know 
about folk magic practices of European countries from the 14th century on. It's inspired and loosely based on the reports of witchcraft that surround the European witch hunts. Traditional witches often study the transcripts of those witch trials and the confessions of accused witches, which we know were almost certainly acquired by torture, and using them as inspiration for modern practices. There's a focus on connecting with the animating spirits of the landscape on which you live and trying to use what is local to you in your magic. It's a great way to connect with your ancestors, with the land, and to practice witchcraft in a more sustainable way. It may also eliminate the need to appropriate from closed practices, so win-win. Now, when you look in the spell books, when you peek at the online discussions, the topics that are buzzing in modern witch communities, you find mental health, healing from trauma, spells and techniques for personal protection, job spells, healing spells, and of course, interest in love and money spells. The witches I know are forces for good in their communities. They're activists, they're teachers, healthcare professionals, librarians, parents. They volunteer for community service. They are caring for family members and neighbors. If I could create a utopian community, I would absolutely populate it with all of the different witches I know. Because even though they all practice differently, they have different personalities and priorities, they are forces for good in their communities and their families. Of course, all witches aren't perfect. There are disturbed or hateful, toxic people in any group. But the people I interact with online, my personal clients, my students, over and over again, they're interested in using their craft to help their families and their communities. And of course, they're interested in using magic and spirituality to better their own lives by healing themselves, providing for themselves and their families, becoming happier. Because guess what? When individuals are happier, healthier, and safer, the people around them benefit from that. Now, many witches are healers by nature, and I don't only mean traditional health-focused healing spells, although that is a big part of it. Witches heal by facilitating change. We heal by being brave enough to face trauma and dysfunction, to root it out so that healing can start. Witches may find, even if they don't identify as a traditional healer, that their magic and presence has a way of catalyzing healing in the world around them. And what is healing, if not positive transformation? Witches, by definition, believe in the power of transformation. And so the craft attracts a lot of people who are willing to put significant energy and effort into transforming their world for the better. I find witches to be generally hopeful, optimistic, and full of integrity. Because those who claim the title witch know what it is to be other, to be different, not always accepted, we are inclined to fight for other vulnerable communities. Because society has believed the worst of us, has misunderstood us, we largely believe in being open-minded. Because we're willing to risk our relationships and reputations for our identities as magical people, we tend to have the courage to stand up for other values and issues that are important to us. Long live the witch. Now you can join me in monthly rituals by subscribing to support Witch and Goddess for just four ninety nine. It's a great way to support this podcast and join me for new video rituals every month. We've got a special Samhain ritual coming soon. Every month you'll have access to another subscriber-only episode featuring me, leading you through the steps of a special ritual designed to transform your life, your magical practice in various ways. And through these rituals, we honor the transitions of life, we work various magics, 
and we experience the sacred side of living as a witch. You can visit blackbirdmagic.com, that's magic with a CK, to learn about my courses, mentorship, and join my free witchcraft group. Or you can connect with me on Instagram at witchandgoddesspod. Thanks for listening.